Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. We are in a new series, and we're calling this series Under Pressure, Choosing Joy When Things Aren't Great. Choosing Joy When Things Aren't Great. How do you do that? You're watching TV, and you see this poor family that has just gone through a tornado, and that tornado has taken everything they own and scattered it to all four corners of Kansas. And they, don't, they, they have no idea what just hit them. They're scratching their head, trying to figure it all out. Their living room is all over the place. And somebody says, hey, choose joy. And they look back at you and say, how in the world are we supposed to choose joy? We don't have any insurance. We don't know what's going to come next for us. We don't know how we're going to replace all this stuff. We, we don't know where we're going to sleep tonight. What in the world are you talking about choose joy? How do you have joy? In a situation like that and why would you want to it's just it's not just the major storms in life it's often the smaller storms that enter our life that can be a challenge for us to choose joy you think of a little middle school age girl she's got a little circle of friends and right before school starts she's on Facebook and realizes that one of her friends has unfriended her and then the next day she realizes another friend has unfriended her And now there's a pattern, and two or three of these girls are dropping out on her, and she's starting to freak out. School's going to start. Who am I going to hang out with? What happened? Who said what? What's going on? And she realizes, I'm in trouble. And you say, choose joy. And she says, first of all, I'm not even sure how to do that. Secondly, why would I want to? How do you choose joy under pressure? And why would you want to? You know, you wake up in the morning, you get ready to go to work, you jump in the shower like a normal work day, about a quarter of the way through your shower, you start to feel the hot water going to warm water, and just a few seconds after that, the warm water is turning into cold water, and you realize that your teenage son beat you into the shower, right? And he's been in there singing and having a rock concert for the last hour, and he's taken all of your hot water, right? Then you get out of the shower, cold, freezing. You know, you you forgot to have a towel close by. You got water all over the floor. Or is that just me? I don't know. Maybe that's just me. But go to put on deodorant, and you realize that your deodorant stick is at the very end, and you don't have a backup, and now that's a problem. You go to put your shoes on. You go to lace your shoes up. Pull real tight on your lace. Lace snaps on you, and instantly you go into that mode, right? You know what mode I'm talking about. The mode like, oh, really? This is the kind of day we're going to have? This is going to be it? Oh, no. And before you even get out of your your, uh, your bedroom, you've got challenges. Things are not going well for you. You you don't think that the whole day is going to go well, and now you're just in this bad mood. It's like, oh, it's going to be one of those kind of days. It's when we choose joy in the minor irritations of life that we prepare the channel of our heart to be able to choose joy in the major irritations in life. I love the fact that even though it was pouring rain, you guys sang through the rain. So apropos for what we're talking about this morning. One thing is for sure, do not think that it is easy. Do not underestimate how challenging it can be to choose joy in the routine, on a routine basis. And also, do not underestimate the beauty when it starts to show forth in your life and becomes a regular routine. 
this idea of choosing joy. This whole series wraps around the idea that just because you're going through something hard and nasty does not necessarily mean that you have to become hard and nasty. This series, Under Pressure, is going to be a deep dive uh, 11 weeks into the letter to, that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church that existed in Philippi in northern Greece, a letter to the Philippians. Now, I'm showing you on the table of contents there the, the book of Philippians, but today, if you have your Bible, I'd like you to take it and open it to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. I'm going to set everything else up that we talk about in Philippians uh, for the weeks to come. I'm setting all that up out of the, the book of Acts today. Um, Acts is the letter that, that if you were to turn there, this is the history of the church. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John talk about from different perspectives the life of Jesus, you know, the things he said, some of the things that he did, how people responded to him. Um, you get the mission, you get, you know, the crucifixion, you get all, all that stuff. And then Acts comes along after the, the crucifixion and resurrection, and it talks about how the church got started. It talks about um, who the major players were, what kind of things did they go through, what were the challenges, what were the leadership challenges, what were the theological challenges. They had some things that they had to work through. And so what I'm about to say may be really helpful for you to, to help you understand your Bible better as you read it, but Acts is the storyline, and then all those books that come after it, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, all those letters that you see, that's basically the, the characters that you read in Acts, and it's, it's basically all that stuff kind of with more detail, and, and you get some stories behind it. And so I want to start this morning with a map, and uh, I've got three circles on the map. The one thing that's not circled that I kind of left uncircled is the city of Philippi at the very top. You can see where it is. And uh, that's really the, the, the place that we're going to center our focus and our attention on for the next uh, several weeks. And I just let me tell you something before I really get going this morning. Um, I don't know if you know, how many of you have downloaded our app, our phone app? How many of you have that? We have an app that you can download, you can get sermon, you can listen to the sermons on there. You can also um, bring it to church with you and open it up and you can, there's a Bible um, within the app. I think it connects to uh, the um, U version. That's a thank you. That's exactly what I was looking for. The U version of uh, app Bible. It's uh, awesome. But one of the other things that you can do is, you know, if you if you listen through the week to the sermon, or if you like, if you do a morning Bible study or whatever, one of the things that will be a part of this particular series. I don't do it with all of them, but with this one, it's going to be a thing where you can kind of take it beyond Sunday, right? Like there be there's a place notes where you can go in, and you can just look for the under pressure icon, and they should be under there, but. Each day, there will be some notes for you to just kind of give you a guided, um, uh, you know, personal chair time thing where you can just kind of work through some stuff and pray and, and think about and just kind of bring the sermon along with you throughout the week. So that's something that's available to you uh, for this particular series, and it is on our app. Um, as Paul goes to Philippi, he's going to be accompanied by a couple of people. He's going to have a, a man named Silas with him. He's also going to have a young man named Timothy with him. Timothy is somewhat of a, an understudy, kind of like an intern. He's looking up to Paul. He's learning from Paul. He's trying to see how Paul does what he does. And also Luke is with Paul as he makes these different journeys. And so you see Philippi up there. And then you see where I've got Thessalonica circled. That's the city to which the, the, the letters First and Second Thessalonians is written. 
And then you can see Ephesus is there kind of in the middle at the top. That's where the letter of Ephesus, that's to whom that's written. And then um, Corinth is where we get First and Second Corinthians. So if you want the history, read the book of Acts. And then when you read the letters, you're going to hear many of the same names and, and the people that you met when you were reading the book of Acts. So I want to give you today, to start, let's, let's get a little history of Philippi. Let's learn a little bit about this city of Philippi that will help you understand what it meant to be Philippian, okay? It was a big deal to them to be a Philippian. Philippi was established by Philip of Mastodon, uh, actually Philip II of Mastodon, and, and Philip was the father of Alexander the Great. And so he names this city after himself. Philippi obtained its unique character as a city because of a battle that took place on the outskirts of the city in 42 BC. In 42 BC, Julius Caesar is assassinated. And he is assassinated by Brutus and Cassius. And Brutus and Cassius end up going to war with Mark Anthony and Octavian. This uh, decisive battle happens about two miles on the outskirts of town. And Octavian and Mark Anthony are victorious in that battle. They defeat the, the co-conspirators and, and they settle Rome uh, or they settle Philippi as a kind of a Roman outpost, or, uh, you know, they, they settle Roman soldiers there. And they give them some farmland for, you know, their efforts in the war. Well, about 10 years after that battle takes place, um, the army of Mark Anthony goes to war with the army of Octavian. These two that had teamed up on Brutus and Cassius, now those two are fighting each other. This is about 10 years after the first battle. And Octavian wins and declares himself the sole ruler of Rome, and now, as the Roman emperor, he has changed his name from Octavian to Caesar Augustus, Augustus, Caesar Augustus, Caesar Augustus, don't try this at home. After the second battle, they take more veterans from those battles, and they settle them in Philippi, and now they make Philippi a Roman colony. This is a big deal. Roman colonies were needed because as Rome conquered new territory, they needed to have soldiers and, and like outposts in place uh, just to support the city. They needed it to raise taxes. They, they needed it for a lot of different things. So they would set up these colonies in case of a rebellion or some kind of insurrection, and the colony would serve as a military outpost. So to be Philippian was to be very proud of your Roman heritage. And the elite status that would come from being able to associate yourself with the Roman Empire in a Roman colony. So in AD, uh, 50 AD, Paul travels to Philippi, and it is there that he is going to meet people from a, a radically different background than himself. And, he is, and these people are going to embrace the message that Paul brings them about Jesus. And it is here that a friendship is born between some of the people in Philippi and this apostle Paul and the message that he's bringing to them as he and then later we're going to see we're going to learn about this letter to the Philippians that he wrote so Paul and his team first uh, when they first reached this city of Philippi and I just like before we you know get too far deep into this I want to put an image in front of you of an open door because as Paul comes into Philippi what he's coming into is opportunity there's opportunity in front of him he this city has not really been reached for Christ and he is going to be the one that basically is going to take the message of Jesus into it. And we're going to get a pretty detailed description of three different encounters 
that Paul uh, has with three very different people with very different backgrounds. And today, we're in the book of Acts. Like I said, the remainder of this series will be uh, in the book of Philippians. So today, I want to introduce you to the characters that are going to keep coming up over time. In Philippi, there's going to be great opportunity, but there's also going to be great pain. And to, to start things off, I want to show you encounter number one is the businesswoman. Paul encounters a businesswoman. This group hits Philippi, and we read this in verse 13 of chapter 16 of the book of Acts. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. Now, just right off the bat, I just want to show you something. They're expecting one thing, and they get another. Okay? Life does not always go according to plan. Sometimes things change. And I want you to see just how ready they were uh, when things changed for them. He says, we sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. So they sat down. This was, you know, when a, in, the, in the time of Christ, the first century, the rabbi or the teacher always sat. Okay? They, they would never stand to teach. They always sat to teach. That's how you knew they were getting ready. You know, if there'd be a crowd of people standing there when the rabbi sat down, you knew, okay, now, now things are, we're about to learn something. And so that's what they do. And Paul begins to teach, and these women hear the story of a generous creator. They hear the story of how God has sent Jesus to forgive us and to heal us and to, to restore us. And they hear about Christ's sacrificial death on the cross and how they've been forgiven of their sins. And, and because of the, that death, you know, they've been set free in Jesus. And Paul challenges them to believe and follow. Verse 14, one of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. Now this kind of sets her apart from other people, specifically women. It sets her apart because she's kind of a, a woman of status and wealth. I mean, if she's dealing in purple, purple, was not, purple cloth was not easy to come by. Uh, first of all, purple was kind of associated with royalty, but to get purple cloth, it had to be brought from certain regions of that particular part of the world. And it was not easy to source. And it was not easy to get the cloth to take the ink or the, the material to take the, the dye. It was a process. And it was hard to do. And so this was kind of expensive. But she's a dealer in purple cloth. And it says she was a worshiper of God. Now, I would stop short of saying that she was a follower of Jesus. She, she knew about God. Someone had talked to her about God, but she had not heard the message of Jesus. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And I want you to notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that Paul convinced her. It's not what it says. It says God opened her heart. It is possible that somebody has walked in here this morning and you've been going through some things in your life and it's causing you to ask some questions and and your, your heart is kind of opening up. You're asking some things maybe you've never asked before. And you might say something along the lines of, God, I just need you to reveal yourself to me. I mean, if you're there and you're real, I, I, I kind of need you to, to, to kind of show me. I need you to speak to me. I need you to, uh, you know, I, I want to know about this stuff. I want to know about you, but this is, I don't, you know, I need a bridge. I need some way to get to you. May I suggest that a simple prayer that you might pray is, God, please just open my heart and help me to see you. Help me to ignore everything else that is around me. Help me to unplug long enough to be able to connect my heart to yours. If Jesus, Jesus, if you're out there and you're real, God, please show me. Now, some are here this morning, 
And you want to have a spiritual conversation with someone that you're close to. There's someone that you know, and they're far away from the Lord, and you want desperately for them to come to a saving faith. But it's very difficult, and you don't know how you're going to do it. Don't assume that it all depends on you. I think that's one of the mistakes that we make as followers of Jesus. We just assume that, that certain things are our responsibility that are not necessarily our responsibility. I was one time I was really worked up about the fact that we weren't baptizing many people and I was taking it personally and I was, you know, was working hard and praying for people and you know, I was trying to do everything I could and I was praying one time and I you know, kind of said something along the lines of, God, I just can't, I can't get these people to be baptized. And what I kind of heard back from God was, oh, so that's your job now. When, when did that become your job? I was like, well, isn't it my job? And I kind of heard, no, no, that's my job. Your job is to be faithful. Your job is to teach. Your job is to love people. Your job is not to get people baptized. That's my job. I will, I will do that. I will reach people. I will call people unto me. That's not your job. So what is my job? What is your job? Be gracious. Be honest. Present what you know when someone asks you. It was 10.30 last night, and my phone rings. And it's my sister, and she's in uh, Dawsonville, Georgia, visiting her, uh, her daughter. Um, and <laughs> I knew I was in trouble when the first thing she said was, Brett, we needed to call you because we've been arguing for the last four hours about the Bible. I said, okay, first, stop doing that, all right? Stop doing that. So they had some questions about, you know, what happens when we die and things like that. And, you know, sometimes some of that stuff, my guess is as good as yours. I mean, it's, it's uh, yours is as good as mine. I don't, I don't know all that stuff, but I was talking to them about it a little bit. Well, really, what was coming up is I haven't, I haven't, my sister has another daughter that lives in another state out west. And uh, she's kind of gone off on her own, and she's making her own way, and she's met this fella, and, um, you know, we baptized her, and I did the Jesus talk with her, and, you know, she's, she, she pronounced a, a faith in Jesus. Well, now she's kind of not sure about all that. And her sister in Dawsonville, Georgia, is worried about her. And she said, Uncle Brett, I've got to do something. I said, no, 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 no. You can't do anything. Okay, you, you can't force her to give her life to Christ. You can't force her into a place where she suddenly comes to faith. That's, you are responsible to her, you're not responsible for her. And she said, well, what do I do? I said, well, what you do is you make sure that you live your life in such a way that she knows that you love her and you love her with Jesus. And you make sure that you walk the talk. Don't, don't, don't you know, make sure that, that you're authentic. Make sure that the things she sees in you are the things that you're talking about. And at some point, we, we hope, we, we can pray that she might come and say, hey, sis, this is kind of what I'm struggling with. What do you think? And I said, at that point, when she asks you, now she's invited you to kind of share some of the things that we're talking about tonight. But there's so, we, it's, we put so much pressure on ourselves to, to get this person saved. And I just, I want to take some of that pressure off of you. That is not your responsibility. Your responsibility is to be faithful to talk to someone when the opportunity presents itself. Your, your responsibility is to live your life as authentically 
and as close to Jesus as you can, to live your life humble, to live your life with love, to treat people with respect, to, 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 to you know, be kind, to bear fruit of the Spirit. That's your job. And as you do that, people are go- you're going to have conversations. And when you get your opportunity, then you can talk from a place of authenticity. I'm just trying to take some of the pressure off of you. Verse 15, when she, when she and the members of her household were baptized, so I want you to see that she comes to faith and now she's going to be baptized. I mean, it's like it's, it's, she doesn't waste any time. Some of you are in the room and you've got faith in Christ, but you've never been baptized. And I'm not telling you that you're not saved until you're baptized. That's not what I'm telling you. I'm telling you that when you get saved, when you place your faith in Christ, the next thing that Christ would have you do is to be baptized. You say, well, why is that so important? It's important because baptism is an outward sign of what's going on with us internally. Baptism is like an announcement that says, hey, I want the world to know I am a follower of Jesus. And so I tell people, you never physically look more like Jesus than the day you're baptized. You're, you die to yourself. You're, what do you do with a dead person? You bury them. And then just like Jesus, you are raised to walk in the newness of life. And this woman comes to faith, she and the members of her household, and she gets baptized. And then look what happens next. She invited us to her home. She said, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. And this team of Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke are now invited to this lady's home and she's like she is not going to take no for an answer they're probably like no that's okay you know we don't want to intrude and it says she had to persuade them she had to persuade them God opens her heart she opens her home and thus begins a cadence of generosity that we see over and over and over again now so far this story's going great you know, they run into these ladies. They, they have a conversation about Jesus. These ladies respond positively. She gets baptized. They, she invites them into her home. She's going to feed them and take care of them. I mean, you're tempted to say, come on, man, it's not that easy for me. I mean, it never goes that easy for me. What are you talking about? Well, it wasn't. Encounter number two, the slave girl. Verse 16. Once, when we were going to a place of prayer, I want you to notice how important prayer is to Paul, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. Now, she is not an independent operator. She is owned. And if you wanted your fortune told, you would go to the owners and you would pay them. They would send you to this demon child and she would tell you her fortune. And these guys are getting rich off the back of this little girl And this is kind of an early form of of human trafficking, right? Verse 17, she followed Paul (laughs) and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Now that sounds like great publicity, but not from this girl, right? I mean, you might kind of want that to happen a little bit, but not this way. Look at verse 18. She kept this up for many days. Can you imagine you know, Paul and Silas, and you're trying to make your way around the city, and this girl is following behind you, screaming at the top of her lungs. You know, these men are the servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Finally, verse 18, finally, Paul became so annoyed, which I find it interesting that Paul got annoyed, we all get annoyed, that he turned around and said to the Spirit, he does not talk to the girl, he's talking to the Spirit inside her, in the name of Jesus Christ, 
I command you to come out of her. And it says, at that moment, the spirit left her. And just like that, this girl's world changes. Just like that, she is free from this bondage. And now, this beautiful, beautiful story is about to get really, really ugly. The demon leaves the girl. And as the demon leaves the girl, income leaves for the girl's owner. The revenue stream dries up, and they are not happy. Verse 19, when her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace. Now, we've talked about the marketplace in here. It's about the size of a football field. It's called the Agora. And at the Agora, you can do just about everything. On the inner courtyard is where you would find all of the, the marketplace. You would, you know, they'd be trading purple cloth. They'd be trading coins. They'd be uh, trading, you'd buy trinkets. You'd buy stuff to fix dinner for the night. That would all happen on the inside. Around the outside were various buildings, some of them businesses, some of them law offices, some of them uh, judicial kind of things. And um, this is also the place where public punishments would have taken place. So they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace. Verse 20, they brought them before the magistrates and said, and you get a little ethnic thing going on here. These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. This is a Roman colony that is intensely devoted to all things Rome and Roman. And they're saying, look, these Jews have come into this Roman colony and they're throwing everything into an uproar. No, man, that's not the problem. You're just mad because your revenue stream dried up. You're just mad because you're not getting rich off this girl anymore. Verse 22, the crowd joined in in the attack against Paul and Silas. And I've got written in my notes here, it's not just raining, it's pouring, right? You ever have those days where, you know, it, you, you think it can't get any worse. God, it can't get any worse. And then you get the phone call. Then you get the email. Then, you know, mom calls or then, you know, brother calls and you get even worse news. And it, it, it's not just raining, it's pouring. Well, that's what's going on. Now the crowd is starting to attack Paul and Silas as well. And the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. Beaten with a stick. Well, Brett, beaten with a stick's better than getting beaten with a cat of nine tails. It's better than being whipped with a whip with, you know, stone and glass and things glued to the end of it. I mean, just hitting with a stick can't be that bad. No, no, no. The guy that doled out this punishment had done this before. In fact, the position has a name. His position is known as the lictor the lictor, and he knew where to hit you, and he knew how to hit you in such a way that it messed you up, and it would inflict maximum pain, and it would send a message to your brain that said, whatever you did to deserve this, don't ever do it again. You're in a public place. You're stripped naked. They bend you over a post. You are chained there, and this guy starts to wail on you. Not only that, but the crowd would gather around, and they would get up close, 
They would get so close that they could spit on you. They would get so close that they could yell right in your ear. They would get right in your face and you can't do a thing and they would just yell. And so you have two things going on. You have the physical pain that is being inflicted on you. You also have an emotional pain that you're suffering at the same time. This was both physically and psychologically damaging. It's deeply troubling when you're trying to do something good for God and it blows up in your face. That's hard. It's hard to be trying to do all the right things with all the right motives and make all the right moves only to find out, you know what? It's not going to go the way you thought it was going to go. In fact, people aren't going to understand. They're going to misconstrue your motives. They're going to lay things on you that aren't necessarily true about you. And you say, well, Brett, maybe... Maybe the beating that they got really wasn't all that bad. No, no, there's a little word in verse 23 that I want you to see. After they had been, what's the word? Severely flogged. Severely flogged. They were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. And now we come to encounter number three, the Roman jailer. And this guy has no idea what's about to happen to him. Verse 24, when he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. Okay, so he's not just going to put them in jail. (laughs) They're going to go into the inner cell. You might insert the word dungeon there. I don't know. Supermax prison, all right? They they do not want these guys getting out. So they're going to put them in the inner cell, and then they're going to lock their feet and their hands in stocks. So they're going to be sitting up. You can't lie on your stomach. You can't lie on your back. You are not going to get any sleep. You're just sitting there. Your body's all busted up. What? Let me just ask you, if this is you, you've come into this city, you love God, you're going to try and tell these people about Jesus, you start telling them about Jesus, you turn around, this, woman, this poor little girl is afflicted, and you do something to ease her pain, and it ends up costing these other guys money. They're influential. They have enough power to get the magistrates on you. Magistrates have you beaten, and then you're thrown in jail in the inner cell, put in stocks. Let me just ask you, how are you feeling about that? What's going through your mind when you've done all this stuff with pure motives? God, I just love you. I want to tell people about you, and this is how things end up. I think for most of us, we're thinking about what we've been robbed of. I've been robbed of my dignity. I've been robbed of a fair trial. I've been robbed of my health. And now I'm robbed of my sleep. And it becomes very, very easy in moments like this to focus in on what has been stolen or taken away from us. Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And then you get this caveat, and the other prisoners were listening to them. I don't know what you would be doing in a cell like that after you'd done everything that you had done. I don't know what you'd be thinking after you'd taken a beating like they'd been taken, had taken and been put in stocks the way they have been put in stocks. But verse 25 says, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. I just got to be honest with you, that's not my first reaction. Is it yours? 
But Paul and Silas have an audience. Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Does does that seem like normal behavior to you? Does that seem easy to you? Let me ask you this. What's it like for you to offer praise from the pit? Two questions. How did they do that? And why would they want to? Neither option would appeal to me. It would be easier for me to just kind of wallow in in my own self-pity and doubt, right? It's just a whole lot easier to go on Facebook and tell the world that life's not going all that great for me. Feel sorry for me. There's plenty of that, right? Isn't it a whole lot easier to just kind of wallow in self-pity when things don't go your way? Isn't that a lot of times what we're tempted to, that along with a little bit of disbelief? And it is here that a word becomes central to our discussion, and that word is the word focus. Focus. When you have taken a beating, when you, are, when you have gone through what these guys have gone through, when life has beaten you up, you are going to focus on something. We are going to obsess over something in our life, and their focus moved forward to the generosity of God. See, the message that they're carrying, the message that they gave to Lydia was a message that God is generous. God has sent his son into the world to give him to you and to me so that we would have our sins forgiven. And while they had been robbed of their dignity, they'd been robbed of a fair trial, they're robbed of their health, there was something that could not be stolen from them. Jesus was alive and well in them. And one day, they knew God is going to make everything right. One day, God is going to bring about a new heaven and a new earth, and there's going to be no more pain, no more crying, no more tears, none of that stuff. They had a future that was secure, and it couldn't be taken away from them, and that's what they focused on. It's like I keep saying, the sun is going to shine again. And verse 25 is pretty short. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were there listening to them. And you just wonder, if one prisoner is in stocks, doesn't look at the other, and say, you know, Jesus did this for us. He did this very thing for us. He he, he was betrayed. He was put on trial. He was beaten. The same thing that's happening to us happened to Jesus. The truth is, we choose joy under pressure because we choose something else. We choose to focus on the generosity of God and his goodness. If you want to remain poised under pressure, focus on the things that cannot be taken away from you. Focus on the things that cannot be stolen from you. And now a weird story is about to get weirder. Verse 26, suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. Now the the, the jailer does not draw his sword because he's going to go fight somebody. 
The jailer does not draw a sword because he's got to defend himself somehow. He draws his sword because he's about to put the tip of that blade right up behind his collarbone where he can drive the sword straight down into his heart. He's going to kill himself because if he doesn't, he's going to have to stand before these people that were responsible for putting Paul and Silas in prison anyway, and he's going to have to answer to his superiors for why they're not in prison. And probably the end of it is going to be off with his head. The jailer's freaking out. Verse 28, but Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. Now at this point, the jailer is going to call for some torches or some lights, and he, and, you know, he comes in and pretty much he just kind of falls at the feet of Paul and Silas, and he's scared to death. And then he looks at him and he says this, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now when you hear that, I think that most of us, when we hear that, we think that he's saying, what must I do to be saved? Kind of the way we think about being saved. Like, how do I get, how do I come to Jesus? I don't think that's what he's talking about. I don't, I don't think he's worried about that. I think what he's trying to say is, oh my goodness, I have so angered the gods by putting you guys in prison and by keeping you in these stocks that something's going on around here and I can't explain it. How do I get these gods off my back? Somebody please save me. And Paul looks at him. And in verse 31, we get this beautiful verse. They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. I mean, come on, Brett. It's got to be, it can't be just that simple. I mean, there's got to be more to it than that. They just said that and that's all it took? No. Verse 32, then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. So they sat down and they started to teach him and they started to unfold what it means to follow Jesus, who Jesus is. Okay, this, this guy loves you. God loves you. He sent Jesus. This is what this is all about. Look what happens next. Verse 33, at, the hour of the, at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. Lydia hears the message of Jesus. She responds by being baptized. Roman uh, jailer hears the message of Jesus. Instantly, he responds by being baptized. Verse 34, the jailer brought them into his house, set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. And it's just like the Lydia story all over again. God comes into his heart, God opens his heart, and he opens his home. And immediately, his resources, resources are at God's disposal. So two questions. How do you pull that off? And secondly, why would you want to? Wouldn't it be easier to just feel sorry for yourself? Isn't it easier to just kind of wallow around in our own self-pity for a while? A couple of things. First of all, what if self-pity is not your most appealing attribute? Self-pity may be the normal response. I mean, just go to social media, and there are certain people that when it's not going well, they are more than happy to let you know, right? But God wants to lift you up above what is normal and by some miracle, have you be able to respond with grace in a nasty situation. That's what God wants. 
God wants to lift you above your circumstances so that you can respond with grace and you don't just wallow in self-pity. I take you back to verse 25 for the second part of that. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. What if you have an audience? What if your kids are watching? What if you're teaching your kids, this is how you respond when things don't go well, and how you respond is pitching a fit, wallowing, singing some song of woe is me. Every time something doesn't go to suit you, that's what they hear you do, and pretty soon they start to associate, okay, when things don't go well for me, then I'm just going to do it like mom does it. When, when, when dad doesn't get his way, he just pitches a big fit. So when I don't get my way, that's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to pitch a big fit. Apparently, that's what you're supposed to do. There may be people in your office or the place where you work, and they know that you go to church. You, they hear you talk about church. They hear you talk about what you did in church last night. They hear you talk about your friends at church or you know, the music or any, anything like that. And, and, and they're watching you, and they're wondering, And part of, part, probably part of what's going through their mind is, hey, church dude, you know, that's all great that you go to church, but when things go south in your world, that's really when I'm going to start watching you. When you get really bad news, I'm going to start watching you. I'm going to see how you respond in the bad news. Hey, church lady, you go on off to Bible study, that's great. I'm, you invited me, I don't really care to go, but I'm watching you. Because I want to see if what you're getting at your Bible study is has any authenticity in your life at all. And I'm going to watch you when things go south. Because if things go south and you start to wallow in self-pity, well, that's what I do. I mean, you're no different than me. But when they see us go through things and we rise above it with poise and dignity and joy and thanksgiving, they can't help but take a step back and go, that's not like me. How are they doing that? Here's the question. Does Jesus make a difference? Not when everything's great, but when everything's not great. People are watching, and the response of our heart can either increase or reduce the credibility of both our own witness and the credibility of God. Sometimes you have an audience. Choosing joy reflects positively on your Lord. That's why. That's the why. What's the how? Like, Brett, okay, that's why I would do it, but how do I do it? How do I? Brett, it's so hard. Yeah, it's hard. The how deals with focus. Do I focus on what's been robbed of me, on what's missing, or do I focus on what cannot be taken away from me? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to focus on something. I'm gonna, uh, when I go through hardship, I'm going to obsess on something. Is it possible that I could obsess over the generosity of God in my life? Is it possible that when I go through hardship and I don't understand, God, what are you doing, that I just start focusing, focusing in on the places where God has been incredibly benevolent to me? Where is my focus? 
Where is my focus? You will focus on something. Focusing on God results in choosing joy. It results in worship and praise. Even when you get body slammed by life, and we all know life is going to body slam you. So how, when that's going on, can you be found as a person who praises? How can you be found as a person when in the worst moments of your life, you are someone that your first thought is, I'm just going to worship. I'm going to praise. My God is good. I'm not going to focus on what's been taken from me. I'm not going to focus on, on that my dignity's been stolen or that my money's been stolen or that my, you know, my reputation has been stolen. I'm going to focus on the fact that God is absolutely crazy about me and my eternity is secure. That's what I'm going to focus on. And because of that, I'm going to offer joy. Some of you have walked in here this morning and you're going through hard, hard stuff. And I get up here and I start talking about choose joy. And you just think, right? You're in church, so you can't act that way. But that's what you're thinking. Listen, these are the moments when our faith gets defined. These are the moments when we really live our life for Christ. And these are the moments that everybody else is watching. Let me pray for you. Father, a room this size, all kinds of problems walked in here this morning. We're carrying all kinds of weight. We, we all got stuff that we're worried about. We've all got stuff that when we lay our head on our pillow, it's keeping us awake at night. We got stuff we cannot get out of our mind. We, we probably all could tell a story about how something bad happened and it didn't go our way and boo-hoo and poor me and, and man, God, you know, why, why, don't, why can't I be like them? Everything's going great for them. We've all got those stories. The question is, how do we respond to those stories? And Father, my prayer is that after today we start to respond a little differently. We're able to focus in on what you've given to us what you secured for us in Jesus, that that can never be taken away. And that we now have and walk with a joy that the rest of the world cannot explain. So Father, for every problem in the room, I would pray for the problem and I would ask you to address it. There's people in here that need you to do something miraculous. But until then, would you help them to choose joy? Would you help them to worship? Would you help them to pick their head up, walk with dignity knowing that you've given them something that can never be taken away? Father, we pray all this in the precious, beautiful, gracious name of Jesus who died to take away our sins and because of that we are completely forgiven and we're humbled. We love you, Father. We worship you. Pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.